Special thank you to Mr. Joel Val, who's sponsoring tonight. Thank you so much to Joel. Uh, tonight's topic is... Now, mind control can mean one of two things. It can either mean we're trying to control somebody else's mind, or it could mean we're trying to control our own mind. And we're going to focus on the latter. Maybe not as exciting... You can't manipulate, you can't exploit as well. But we'll be focusing on some of the tools to gain higher levels of mind control. There's a survey I saw out of the uh, University of, I think it was Michigan. They surveyed 2 million people and they gave them a list of 24 qualities. And they had to rank themselves. What's my top quality? It could be generosity, uh, loyalty... Out of 2 million people, the vast majority response was number 24 on the list, self-control. Self-control is number 24 out of 24. I was speaking to a fellow, he was in the FAU and now he's in graduate school, and he told me that he used to follow somebody online, he followed his YouTube videos. He was a, a bodybuilder and the philosopher. Combination you don't find that often. He was a bodybuilder and a philosopher, and he was talking about the idea of not taking life too seriously. Don't take life too seriously. So he wanted to know, can that fit in to a Torah philosophy? Would we agree to that idea of not taking life too seriously? So the basic answer is no. We would not believe in that. We believe that life is very serious, this is the real deal, we have one chance, we only have a few years and we have a special mission to accomplish, so we better take it seriously. We might agree that we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously, but life we have to take very seriously. And I, I, I'm going to posit that the only way to accomplish real tranquility the only way to feel real menucha sanefesh, to have a sense of serenity, is if we take life very seriously. It sounds almost counterintuitive, but we'll see those two things go hand in hand. If I take life seriously, then I'll be able to attain real serenity, tranquility, and menucha sanefesh. I think the one quality we need in order to have any level of mind control and why are we focusing on the mind? The answer is because that's who we are. The Baal Shem Tov had a line that you are where your mind is. When Shmuel, the great prophet, was a young man, it says he was sleeping inside of the Mishkan. And all of the, the Mepharshim point out he wasn't sleeping inside of the Mishkan. You can't cuddle up next to the Aron. That's not appropriate. But they explain that's where his mind was. And because his thoughts were always in sanctity and Kedusha, that's where he was as well. We are where our thoughts are. So the focus is on the mind. If we take our mind seriously, that's how we take life seriously. That's how we attain real serenity. The Mishnah tells us the formula. Ezehu Gibor, the famous Mishnah, the beginning of the fourth parak of Perkeavos, who is the strong one? Hakovesh es Yitzro, one who is able to subdue his inclination. If you're able to keep yourself in check, if you're able to fight against that which is natural, 
that defines you as a strong human being. Comes along the Tiferes Yisrael, one of the great commentators in the Mishnah, and he says, obviously we don't care about physical strength. Jews were never good at athletics. That's not our forte. But what the Mishnah is telling us is, She'eno rach levav. You can't be a wimp. You can't be a pushover in life. You can't be fickle. We have to tap into our gavura, to our strength, to our courage for a lofty goal. And we can't be concerned for any harm along the way. We have a goal, we have to be determined, we have to be focused, and we have to keep on pushing. Strength of character is... Although I may not feel like it, although I'm not respected, although I'm not appreciated, although, 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 I have a goal and I have strength to keep on going. It's all about getting to the end. So it's clear from the Mishnah and the Tiferes Yisrael, we need to live strong lives. We need to live with determination. This reminds me of a line... Some of you may have known Rabbi Waxman. Rabbi Waxman was the, the founder of the yeshiva in Milwaukee. He passed away a couple days ago. And during his funeral last night, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I plan on doing so, Mitzvah Shem. But I was speaking to Rabbi Feinberg, and he told me one line that Rabbi Chaplowitz, who's another founder of the yeshiva in Milwaukee, one line that he said about Rabbi Waxman. He said, Everyone knows the concept of Mesiras Nefesh, which means giving your soul for Torah. With Rabbi Waxman, it was more than Mesiras Nefesh, it was Mesiras HaGuf. He gave his whole physical being to the point where it wasn't even healthy. But that was the Gevura of Rabbi Waxman. That's what the mission is telling us. You have to have Gevura, you have to have strength. The, the definition of strength is... I'm able to fight against that which is natural. And parenthetically, that's the definition of spiritual. Spirituality is a buzzword. We spoke about this Shabbos morning. Right? Spirituality is a buzzword, and no one has any clue what it really means. The most basic definition of spirituality is living a life beyond that which is natural. So if naturally, when you say this to me, I would respond like that, and I know I probably don't want to be saying that, spirituality is transcending natural tendency. That's what the mission is saying. In order to be a spiritual person, we have to have strength, we have to have strength of character. So we can control our feelings, we can control our thoughts, and we can control our reactions. I remember seeing an article many years ago, this was 2007, 2008, after the Virginia Tech massacre. I forget his name, but he slaughtered 35 people or something like that. I think at the time it was one of the, the greatest massacres in America. And he wrote in his diary the day before he did this, you made me do this. You, the system, you, the people at school, you, the professors, you gave me no choice. So when I'm the victim, not only am I not maximizing my potential, but then I have potential to do very evil things. The mission is telling us we have control over our feelings, we have control over our thoughts, we have control over our reactions. However, we can't allow that to get to our heads. 
The Mishnah tells us, The famous Mishnah in Perkyovos, Do not believe in yourself until the day of death. Meaning to say that although we have the ability to control our emotions and our thoughts, we have to be careful not to put ourselves in a makom nisayon. We can't place ourselves into a situation where I'm testing myself. You have to be smart, you have to be rois and nolad, you have to look into the future, avoid challenges. That's what the Pasuk says in Mishlei, ki betach bulos tasa How do you wage war? You don't hey, wage war head on, let's just charge the enemy. Betach bulos, Shlomo Melech says, you have to use strategy. Strategy means trying to maneuver yourself in the right position where I don't even have to fight. So we spoke about a couple weeks ago, the distractions of a cell phone. So don't fight with yourself when you, when you feel or hear the buzz, I want to pick it up, I want to see who's texting me. Have times where it's turned off and it's put away. I don't have to challenge myself. Don't test yourself where I know I could look at something inappropriate, but I'm not going to. Guess what? You are going to. The only way to avoid that is by having some kind of mechanism, if it's a computer, if it's an iPhone, and you can have a filter, to make it that I'm not tempted, because even if I am tempted, I can't do anything about it. So we do have self-control. On the other hand, we can never put ourselves in a situation where we feel like we have to tap into deep levels of self-control. Here's the question, though. Okay. So I could control myself and my mind and the way I think and the way I process information and my perspectives. But it takes a lifetime. It takes decades. I don't want to wait that long. I have relationships right now I have to, I have to work on. So the answer is it doesn't take a lifetime. It doesn't take a lifetime. We have the ability within ourselves to change our perspective, to change our emotions on a dime within a split second. It doesn't take a lifetime. And I'll bring you a proof to that from Parshas Mishpatim. We have the famous mitzvah, you're walking along and you see the donkey of your enemy is lying under its burden. So you're not sure what to do. The way Rashi understands this Pasuk is, you might think, He's my enemy. I'm not going to help him. You might think that. No, azov, tazov, imo. Give him a hand. Help pick up the animal, even though he's someone you despise. That's how Rashi understands the Pasuk. However, comes along the Targum Yonasen ben Uziel. Rabbi Yonasen ben Uziel was one of the 80 disciples of Hillel Hazaken. And the Gemara says there were different levels of Talmidim, and Rabbi Yonas and Benaziel, he was the greatest Talmud of Hillel. The Gemara tells us that when he was immersed in learning, if a bird would fly over his head, it would just explode in fire. There was so much intensity and spirituality coming out of this person. Rabbi Yonas and Benaziel created a Targum, which is the translation, but it's also an interpretation of, of Nevi'im, of all of the prophets. And after he completed that, the Gemara Megillah says that a baskal came out from the heavens and said, what are you doing? Why are you revealing my secrets to humanity? So being a gavra himself, being a man of strength, he looks up into Shemaim and he says, 
What are you talking about? I didn't do it for my own glory. I didn't do it for my father's household. I did it to help people understand how to read Nevi'im. Okay. However, the Gemara says that he wasn't able to write his commentary on Ksuvim. Because in Ksuvim, right, Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim, Ksuvim, you have secrets alluding to the times of Mashiach, and that Hashem did not want to reveal to the world, so he wasn't able to write a commentary on Ksuvim. Sir Yonasim Benazil, though, on his explanation of this mitzvah, he has a whole different view than Rashi. Let's read some of the Aramaic together. This is source number six. In Tech Mechamra, the Sonach, the Aunt Sonny Lay Al Chavosa, the Aunt Nat Yodabay Belachudach. If you see someone's animal suffering under its burden, you don't like this fellow. Now he's basing this interpretation in the Gemara. The Gemara says it's not referring to a person you just don't like because he annoys you or because he bothers you. It's talking about a situation where you saw this person do something wrong. You saw him do something very severe. And if you were with somebody else, you could testify against him and then have him pay the price. However, you were the only one who saw him do whatever he did. So the halacha is, you're allowed to feel resentment towards this person. So you see someone who you're allowed to hate on some level, at least his actions, maybe not his essence. And the Torah therefore continues according to Yonas and Benuziel, Mishbok tishbok bahahi shaita ya sona At that moment, before you help him, remove the hatred you have for him, v'tifrok v'titon imei, and help him and help his animal. And then you're allowed to return hating him. So according to Yonas and Benuziel, what the Torah is saying is, I know you hate this person, I know you're allowed to feel this sin of this resentment towards him, but the mitzvah right now is to help his animal get up, and therefore remove your hatred for the moment, and then, after five minutes, continue hating him. So I think you see two amazing things from this Targum. The first is just to ask a basic question. Why do you have to remove the hatred? The animal is suffering, so help out the animal. Do the guy a favor. Why do you have to remove the hatred? Just do the chesed. So the first thing you see is that the mitzvah of doing chesed, the mitzvah of helping somebody out, is not about the action of helping. It's about the action together with the machshava, with my feelings. It's not just doing you a favor, it's doing you a favor because I love you. That's number one we see from this targum. If I'm doing chesed for you, I have to try my hardest to feel love as I'm doing the chesed. I think the second thing we can pull out of this Targum is that we have the ability to take an emotion, to turn it off for a moment, and then turn it back on. It doesn't take a lifetime. It could be a split second, and I could change my whole perspective on you. Noah Weinberg used to tell the story, he'd give the analogy. He said, if you're, you're in the Eretz Yisrael, in a crowded shuk, and everyone's pushing and shoving and try to, trying to get their, their groceries. And then during the, the fray, you get pushed over. And you fall down, and all your groceries spill out, and you're laying there on the ground. And the first thing that comes to your mind is, I'm going to get up and rip this guy's head off. And you get up, and you see the guy, he turns around, and he's holding a cane 
that's red at the end. And you see that he's blind. Within a split second, the anger and the frustration and melts away. So you see that we could change our perspective if we had the proper ratzon, if we had the proper desire to have control over ourselves. The Torah is saying we have the ability to do so. The Chazanish, who was one of the, the great minds of the 20th century, he speaks about Midos refinement, trying to enhance our character traits. And he writes, even though there are many different character traits that we need to work on, what is the root? What is the, the foundation of everything? There's only really good, one good character trait, and there's only really one bad character trait. What is the one bad character trait? Hamida Rahi The only bad character trait is allowing life to take its natural course. Allowing yourself to live on autopilot. Then you'll get angry, you'll be jealous, you'll indulge in taiva, you'll pursue honor, you'll have all the negative character traits. What's the one good Mida? That's the foundation of all the good midos. Says the Chazanish, making a hachlota, having a determination that I will not allow my life to go on autopilot. And I will not allow myself to do that which is natural. That's the foundation of everything. So we have the ability to have the gevura, the strength, the, the control of our mind, but the foundation, writes the Chazunish, is only if we say, I am not letting myself go naturally, I am not letting myself just float down the stream. Right? The, the, what, what's the, the song? Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. That's not a good message to share with a child. <laughs> just float down the stream, it doesn't really matter anyway, you'll die eventually, and it's just a dream. Says the Chazanish, that is the Midorah we're trying to avoid. So I want to go through a couple of examples of mind control when it comes to controlling emotion, when it comes to controlling the intellect, and when it comes to getting involved with mitzvot and spirituality. Those three categories, emotion, intellect, and spirituality. Now, whenever we talk about the subject of focus and meditation, you have to start with the altar of Kelm, Reb Simcha Zisel. Reb Simcha Zisel was one of the three disciples of Reb Yisrael Salanter. He was the oldest disciple. Reb Yisrael used to say about Reb Simcha Zisel, He would quote the verse in Shir Shirim, How beautiful is my, my beloved, there's no blemish. That's how he referred to Reb Simcha Zisel. Now, Reb Simcha Zisel was known as the altar of Kelm, and that's where he founded his Talmud Torah, his yeshiva there. And there were many famous personalities that come out of Kelm. Not to be confused with Chelm. Chelm is a whole different thing. This is Kelm. Reb Chaskel Levenstein, Reb Yeruchim Levovitz, Reb Elia Lapian, Reb Elia Dessler, some of the greatest names in the world of Musr and Machshava and Jewish philosophy, these personalities were influenced directly by Reb Simcha Zisel. The author stressed the importance of order and discipline as a way to foster self-control in thought and action. 
And he emphasized the idea of shviras haratzon, which means to be able to break your will. Sounds kind of intense, to break your will. But it means what the Chazanish was telling us, to be able not to live a life on autopilot. The, the practice in Kelm was that when they received the letter, they would never open the letter right away, no matter how much they were anticipating it. Right? In the olden days, you're, you're away you know, in, in a yeshiva, you could be hundreds of miles, or even thousands of miles away from your family. I've spoken to people who were in America in the pre-World War II, and the trend for some Americans was to actually go to Europe and to learn in the great yeshivas in Europe. So when you're that far away from your family, you might receive a letter once a month or two, and you want to see what's going on. How, how's mommy and tati doing? Is Zadie still alive? You want to know what's going on. But they had a policy, they would never open it right away. The text message comes, I don't have to open it right away. Don't have to. One, he was curious to know how his son was doing, so he would just walk up to his dorm room and look inside and see were things in order, was the bed made, if everything was misudar in order, then he knew he was doing okay. One of the, uh, the unique parts of the schedule of Kelm is they had a five-minute seder. Usually yeshiva has a three-hour seder in the morning, three-hour seder in the afternoon. They had a special five-minute seder which required the bachrim to come to yeshiva. The young men would come to yeshiva. They'd have to be punctual, and they would sit there for only five minutes trying to train themselves in punctuality and focusing. You only have five minutes. Think of this one thing that you're doing, and that's it, and the seder's over. We actually have the, the privilege right now of having with us in the community until tomorrow the grandson of Rev. Vosner. Shmuel Vosner was one of the greatest poskim of, of this past generation. He's the author of the Shevet Halevi. So as soon as he introduced himself to me and I heard his last name, Vosner, I asked him, are you related? I said, yeah, I'm his grandson. So this fellow lives in, in England. And I'm like, I'm not letting you leave here. You're not going out of Boca until you tell me at least five to ten good stories about your grandfather. <laughs> so he, he learned with his grandfather for three years when he was 16, 17, 18 years old. And he prepared shear together with Ravosner. And he said, one thing about my grandfather is that he was extremely punctual. We would learn from 10 a.m. to like 12.30 and if I got there at 10.01, he would do this. Nisht. <laughs> I don't want to learn with you. You're a minute late, I'm sorry. If I had to be held by that same standard, <laughs> So punctuality was a big thing in Kelm, but it was all with the same focus of training the young men, not just to immerse themselves in Torah study, but to, to become focused individuals. I remember reading in the biography of Yaakov Kamenetsky that he went to Kelm for a short period. And his impression was, it's nice, but it's not for me. <laughs> his personality was just like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to fit in here. It's way too rigid. And I think it's a beautiful illustration where, you know, we're going to have our State of the Community address next Motzi Shabbos. Different places are good for different people. For some personalities, being in Kelm, if you're Rabbi Ruchim Levavitz, that could make you into who you were. That could make you the greatest mashkiach ever to live. 
If, if you're of Chesko Levenstein, if you're Rabbi Elia Lapian or of Dessler, you could thrive in that environment. If you're of Yaakov Kamenetsky, just as great of a personality, but it's just, it's not for me. People are different. People need different things. One last story about Kelm. There were some wealthy people that were going hunting around the yeshiva, and uh, they wanted to get close to the yeshiva, and they were pretty rowdy, and they had their guns, and they were shooting, and they wanted to see what the young men were, how they would you know, react to such a noise and chaos. And they looked in through the window, and they didn't flinch. That was the mind control in Kelm. I want to read to you something from Rabbi Ruchim Levavitz, the great mashkiach of the mirror, who only learned in Kelm under the altar of Kelm for a short time, but uh, he writes as follows. This is an amazing, amazing revelation, source number nine. He said, I like to reveal something to you that all my life I've never revealed to a soul. I came to Kelm as a bacher, as a young man, an ordinary bacher like anyone. After I merited hearing our master and teacher, the man of genius and piety, Reb Simcha Zisel, just a short time afterwards, he passed away. In my bitterness, I went and stood behind the wall of the room where he was lying. Where he was lying dead. I stood there all day crying and screaming. I neither ate or drank. I still remember what I was telling myself. I had only just begun to understand what man is and what his obligations are. My eyes had just begun to be opened after hearing you speak a few times and now you've left me. I stood there like that all day. All my life I will feel that if Hashem Yisbarach merits me a little understanding and knowledge, all my life I shall feel that it's only thanks to that occasion, to that day. Yeruchim Levavitz was basically saying all of the greatness that he accomplished in Torah, he could attribute to those powerful feelings coming out towards his Rebbe after his passing. In the, the Chumash, we find the, one of the classic examples of being able to have control over emotions. Right when Nodav and Avihu pass away, the two sons of Aaron, when they bring the, the foreign fire into the Mishkan, the Torah tells us, Vayidom Aaron, that Aaron was silent. That was his reaction. His two sons, who he had so much hope for, they were some of the greatest scholars of the generation. V'yidam Aaron, he was silent. Yet we find when David Melech is informed that Avshalom, his son, has been killed in battle, he has a very different reaction. Read to you two psukim here from Shmuel Beis. Source number 11. V'yirgaz HaMelech, that he was shaken. Ve'yala Elias Hashar ve'yev ki went upstairs and he cried. Ve'cho'amor belechto and as he was going, David said, "Bni of Shalom, bni my son of Shalom, bni of Shalom, miyitein musi ani tachtachav." Only I could be the one who have died instead of you. Av Shalom, bni bni my son, my son. And three psukim later, v'hamelech lord as panav. That the king, referring to David Melech, he covered his face, the Yizak Hamelech Kolgadol, and he cried out in a tremendous voice, Bani of Shalom, of Shalom, Bani, Bani, my son, my son. So, why the different reactions? Aaron HaKohen, we have the paradigm of Gevura, of strength, of accepting the divine judgment. The Yidom Aaron, he was silent. 
David the Melech, though, can't control himself. Was David on that much of a lower level than Aaron that he couldn't keep it together? What's the difference between Aaron and David? So some explain it was not based on the personalities, it was based on the occasion. What was happening when Nodav and Avihu died? That was during the inauguration of the Mishkan. That was a time of simcha, that was a time of celebration. Aaron understood it's not a time for mourning, and therefore, the Yidom Aaron. It's a time of simcha, I'm not going to cry. Regarding David and Melech, there was no special occasion, there was no special holiday, and therefore, he let his emotion out. The only difference between Aaron and David was, Aaron said, it's not the proper occasion, and he had the ability to hold back that emotion. There's a story with the, the son of the altar of Slobodka. The altar of Slobodka, besides being influenced by Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, he was directly influenced by the altar of Kelm, by Rabbi Simcha Zisel. When he was an older man, this is probably in the mid-1920s, I think he passed away 27, 28, around there. He was living in, in Hebron, and his son was ill. So he was staying, it was during Cholomoed, Pesach or Sukkot, during Cholomoed, and he was staying in Yerushalayim near the hospital where his son was. And uh, his son passes away during Cholomoed, and the, the Talmidim who were aware of it didn't want to say anything to him, they didn't want to destroy his yantif, but he was able to pick up, just based on their mannerisms and what they were saying and what they weren't saying, he knew that his son died. So, the first thing he asked for was, can you bring me a Shulchan Aruch Arachaim? Bring me the Shulchan Aruch. I want to see the code of Jewish law. And he wanted to look up if he was allowed to cry during Cholomoed. Now it's interesting, if you look in the Halachas of Shabbos, we did this not that long ago in the Dirshu, in, uh, in Reish Peches, this is number 13 in the Shulchan Aruch. The Ramah writes, Although generally we try to refrain from crying on Shabbos, if it'll bring you pleasure, if you do cry, in order to push away the pain from your heart, then then it would be okay to cry on Shabbos. So if you read this Ramah superficially, that pretty much is, a, is an open leniency. Whenever you're feeling a lot of pain, and crying would be a way of letting out the emotion, as it always is, you could cry. However, comes along the, the Taz, the Taz says, it doesn't mean any kind of tear. There's a certain type of crying that's okay in Shabbos, explains the Taz. It's only if you're on the level where because of your connection and you're clinging to Hashem, Zolgim Eden of Demos, you're crying because it, your relationship is, is so magnificent and beautiful. Shekain Matsin of Rabbi Akiva, we find the Zohar tells the story of Rabbi Akiva that he would cry and whenever he would say Shir Hashirim. He would, ring this, he would read the Song of Songs by Shlomo Melech, which is the metaphor to the relationship between the Jewish people and Kalal Yisrael, and he would cry hysterically every time he would read it. Because he understood the depth of it. That kind of crying is okay. Or if you're crying when you're davening, from your high spiritual accomplishments, that's fine. However, concludes the Taz, 
But just the cry to get rid of pain, that we don't do on Shabbos. So the altar of Slobodka, he looked at the sources and he saw the Taz, and then he turned to his doctor. He himself was an older man at the time and had a physician who he was very close with, and he asked his physician, is it healthier to cry or not to cry? And he advised him, better not to right now, because of the intensity, I would try to wait until after Yontif. So, Cholomoid continued, it was Cholomoid Sukkis. After the Levaya, he attends the funeral, and the whole time they tell the story, people who are with him on the wagon, that there are a couple, couple moments there where he began to lose it, and he would snap his fingers to focus himself, not to allow himself to cry. He gets back home, he prepares for Shemini Atzeres, on Simchas Torah, he's dancing and singing with the rest of the yeshiva, and only as Simchas Torah is, is waning, where it's becoming darker, he kept on asking, when is Yontif over? When is Yontif over? Just to see exactly officially when Yontif was over, right after Havdalah, he burst into tears and he was uncontrollable, he was unconsolable for hours. That's called having control over your emotions. I'll share with you one other personality, and uh, we, we've spoken about this before in the past, we've mentioned this in Tishabov. There's an amazing Sefer, Taurus of Rum. Taurus of Rum was written by Rav Avram Grzynski. He was the Mashkiach, the spiritual leader of Slobodka during the war, and he was in the Kovna Ghetto. The, the amazing thing about this Sefer, we, we, we quoted from this and during the Thursday Night Vod a couple weeks ago, the amazing thing about this Sefer is, before every essay he has the date. And the dates are always 1939, 1940, 1941. He's writing deep thoughts of Musr and philosophy and connection with Hashem as he's living through the horrors of the Kovna Ghetto and the Holocaust. In the introduction to this work, the introduction was written by one of his sons that survived the war. And he shared a couple of, of biographical insights into his father. To share with you a couple of ideas here again to see the idea of control of emotion. He says, even before the war, my mother was very ill, and eventually she passed away, leaving my father, the Taurus of Rome, with eight children. And the youngest ones were a year and two years old. So we had to somehow continue being who he was and take care of the family and take care of small children. As soon as she passed away, lo beirach tekev, he didn't say the bracha right away of baruch dayin ha'emes. When someone passes away, the bracha is, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you are the source of all blessing, dayin ha'emes, the true judge. And that's our way of accepting the uh, Hashem's judgment. He didn't say the bracha, though. And at first, his son writes, I was surprised. Why is he not saying the bracha? My father was an ish halacha. He lived. Every step of his life was according to halacha. He didn't say the bracha. He said only a couple days later, two days later, then he said the bracha. Why did he wait two days? 
because he felt that as soon as his wife passed away, he wouldn't be of clear mind and heart to be able to say it, as is required from the Shulchan Aruch. You're supposed to say it with feeling and emotion, with the fullness of mind, and he felt he couldn't do that until two days later, so he waited and he said the bracha. Now you might say, listen, maybe he wasn't that emotional of a person, and to keep composure when you're not that emotional is, uh, is not a big deal. From first-hand testimony, it sounds like he was a very emotional, very passionate personality. There's a letter that he writes talking to a friend where he says, it's already been 10 years since my wife died, but whenever I speak about it or write about it, it doesn't feel like the past. I'm reliving it every second. Another little vignette that his son shares with us about the Taurus of Ram, he says that during the entire darkness of the Holocaust... Nonetheless, lo nofel beruchel, he never fell down in his spirit. Tomid haya he was always alive and living with, with joy. Ubiyomim chashuchim beyoser, and even in the darkest times, his face would somehow share radiance with all of us. His son writes that it was after a particular terrible massacre in the Kovna ghetto, that his father was walking with one of the young men of the yeshiva, and he saw the young man was feeling depressed and hopeless. So the Taurus of Ram said, you should know it's, it's Shabbos. Shabbos is coming. You've got to be happy. You have to have control over those emotions. When they were running away from the Kovna ghetto, and the Taurus of Ram was joining them, he was dressed up in the clothing that he would wear to Yeshiva to give Shirim. The Kapata... Like a, like a Rosh Hashiva. So once they left the city, somebody saw Rav Ram Grzynski and they asked the question, why are you dressed up as if you're going to Yeshiva? So he said back, it's a halacha. The Gemara tells us, Afilu bishas hasakana, even in times of danger, lo yishana adam es atzmam and rabbana shalom, don't ever lose your composure. Even in a time of danger, you're running for your life. Just put on some sweatpants. It doesn't work like that. You don't change from, from what you're accustomed to. So these are some examples of control of emotions. Um, we're not going to have time now, but I do have here in the Marmacomos from Rabbi Yisrael Salanter a letter that he wrote in 1848 during one of the, the worst cholera outbreaks, an epidemic that killed hundreds of thousands of people throughout Europe. And he's giving advice and chizik and encouragement how to deal with tragedy, how to keep on moving forward. And his main point is, you have control over your life. You're not the victim to anything. You're not even the victim to cholera. We could deal with this. This is the famous story where, I think also in that same year, 1848, he got up in one of the, the major shuls in Vilna. And Vilna was, was suffering greatly from cholera. It was Yom Kippur night during Kol Nidre. And he got up and he spoke about the sanctity of the day and how we have to pray. And then he took out a little glass, filled it up with some wine, had some mazonos, and he made kiddush. And he was basically showing them by example that today everybody has to eat and drink because the only way to stay healthy is by making sure that you're strong physically as well. Now, it happens to be, in hindsight, that was a very controversial move because he wasn't even the rub of that shul. 
<laughs> gets up. And there were Gedolei Olam. There were great people living in Vilna at that time. And they didn't all agree to that psak. But Rabbi Yisrael wasn't afraid to express his opinion. So those are some examples of controlling emotions. I want to give one example here of controlling the intellect. We already spoke about Rabbi Simcha Zizel having a five-minute seder that was meant to train the, to, to train the mind. I want to share with you something from Chaim Friedlander. Chaim Friedlander was the great Mashkiach in Panovich. He speaks about, and I think the modern term for this is mindfulness. This is a buzz term as well, mindfulness. But it's, it's not in the last 20 or 30 years. This goes back to classic Torah Hashkafa. Writes from Chaim Friedlander when it comes to thinking clearly in source number 17. What does it mean to have tranquility or serenity? It means you're living with emotion. You're not just living with an intellectual recognition, but rather, you're able to galvanize, to focus in through thought of mind, to every aspect of what you're doing right now, with all of your energies, only for the thing you're doing right now and nothing else. And he goes on to say, because a human being cannot do more than one thing at one time. And even though you might be smart, and you might be uh, very competent, and you could multitask, Says Rechaim Friedlander, if you're multitasking, you're not going to have Menuchas HaNefesh. This is so basic. This is so simple. But it's something we just don't have the discipline to do. To do one thing at one time and do it well. He says, When you're doing something right now, do not allow any thoughts from the past or from the future to enter your mind. I'm focusing on this one thing. There's something called email meditation. Ever heard of email meditation? It sounds kind of esoteric, but it's very simple. The problem with, with many of us is that you're constantly checking your email. Some people complain, I don't check mine enough. I sent you it already a day ago. But most people constantly check their email if they're responsible. But then it gets to be a distraction and it's annoying. So email meditation is, I don't care how many emails I've gotten in the last hour, just like I have times where I eat during the day and I have a time for exercise. Yeah, right. (laughs) Theoretically, I have a time for email. Now, it depends on what you're doing and it depends how often you have to check it. For some people, that means I have five slots a day where I check my email. For some people, that means it's twice a day. But it's a set thing where it's not constantly mixing into what I'm doing. That could bring Menuchas HaNefesh. It's all about being Masader, organizing our life in a way where when I'm doing this one task, that's the only thing I'm focusing on. Says Reb Chaim Friedlander, he quotes from Reb Dessler that whatever we're doing, whenever we're doing it, we should think the following thoughts. There's only one human being in the entire world who atzmo. That's me. Sounds kind of selfish. But he means that I'm only thinking about myself right now in this particular task. 
And there's only one thing that needs to happen, which is the thing I'm doing. And there's only one time to be doing it, which is right now. That's it. If you're learning, oftentimes people get so overwhelmed. There's so much to learn. There's so much to do. If I'm reading this line of Gemara, nothing else in the world exists. I'm just trying to understand what is the Gemara saying? What is the question? What is the answer? In learning in general, we, we live in an age where we have so many new svarim, so many books with so many quotes. Uh, you could find anything. Some, uh, someone said recently, it's amazing you put these sources together, 20. It's not amazing at all. Anybody could put any sources together because we have access to everything and anything. The problem with that is it's a bracha because we're seeing things now that we've never seen before. The, the challenge, though, of having access to so much information is you forget how to learn. I'll give you an example. Now they have the Dear Shu Mishnah Buru. And we use that every morning, and it's wonderful. And it'll quote from all the contemporary sources and any particular halacha. However, if you're 18 or 19 years old, and you're learning Mishnah Buru for the first time, so having the Dear Shu edition might not be a good idea. If there's too much here to distract you with, so you're not focusing on the meat and potatoes. Oh, let's go check that out. Oh, it's quoting this source over here. One second. What is he saying? What is he not saying? Let's try to read it. Do you have a question? Good question. Let's see if somebody else had that question hundreds of years before. And if they did, let's read their answer. And if they didn't, let's ask ourselves, why didn't they have that question? Maybe that means we're missing something. Just basic step-by-step -step analysis of what we're learning. Mind control is not just controlling emotions, but it's controlling the way we think. The, uh, the grandson of Rav shared with me that when his grandfather was only about 28, 29, and he was in Eretz Yisrael, he was sitting in shul during a Friday night davening, and somebody came running into shul and he told him, your house is on fire. The whole thing's burning up. Now, just to put this in perspective, Rav Vosner, when he first moved there to Israel, had nothing. His, his wife's family was somewhat wealthy back in Europe, but they lost everything when they moved. The whole story, how they got there, was miraculous, we'll say, for a different time. But um, he told his grandson that he would live week to week. The only protein he had was a chicken wing. A chicken wing for the entire week. So whatever possessions he had, they were at his house, and now he's hearing that they're all getting burnt up. What do you do? You're a Vosner. <laughs> so his grandson said that he had a question. He looked at the guy. Is there Sikhanas Nefashos? Is, is anyone's life in danger? The guy said, no. Are you sure? Yes. Okay, good Shabbos. He went back to davening. <laughs> what are you going to do? The halacha is, if your house is burning down, you can't put out the fire. Practically speaking, most of the time we assume that if the house is really on fire, that is considered pikuach nefesh, that is life-threatening for neighbors, and therefore you really could put out the fire. In this particular case, I guess based on the way they were living, in you know, an old type of village, one house is on fire, is not going to cause a whole terrible thing. So he found out that information. 
I can't do anything about it, he went back to davening. Most of us, I think, would probably run out of shul and at least be involved with it. And, and you know, I can't do anything, what's the point? That's the famous story of Rebbe Elia Lapian. He was waiting by the bus stop. This is a classic. And he was getting a little bit nervous. He was late for an appointment. So he looks over to see if the bus is coming, and the bus was not here yet. And afterwards, he felt such regret. Why'd I look? It's not going to make the bus come any faster. So there's control of emotion, there's control of intellect, and there's even control of movements, control of, of who I am physically. I'll share with you a pet peeve, and I hope nobody takes it personally if this, people do it sometimes, but the, the, there's like a, an issue where people pace during davening. We've all done that, we've all done that. We like just pace back and forth as if you own the place, right? <laughs> you pace back and forth. Now a lot of that is just because I'm a little bit antsy, and I, you know, I, it's hard for me to sit still, but having control is not just intellect and emotion, but it's even what I allow myself to be doing. I don't need to be walking back and forth. I could sit here and focus. We'll end with this. The, uh, the Gemara Mordechatan tells us that you're not allowed to get married during Cholamoid. Cholamoid is still considered Yontif. It's a holiday. You can't get married. Why not? Isn't it adding Simcha? As the Gemara says, there's a principle... You're not allowed to mix one simcha with another simcha. What's the big deal? What's the problem with mixing one simcha, the simcha of getting married with the simcha of Pesach or the simcha of Sukkot? So Tosus explains, he says it's similar to the principle of not doing a bundle of mitzvos. The Gemara tells us, She'ein osin mitzvos chavilos. Don't do mitzvos in bundles, meaning to say rather do one thing at a time. He says the same thing is true when it comes to simcha. You have to focus on one simcha at a time. We don't want to mix things together. So we've spoken about different examples of mind control. We've definitely shared many stories of great personalities. The way to do this, the way to implement this, the only way to do it is through doing it. We have the potential to do so. The more we do it, the more we trust ourselves that we can. Although we don't put ourselves into situations where we have to, but the more we trust ourselves that we can, the more we're working on those muscles and the more control we'll have. Have a wonderful Shabbos, everybody.